2:38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. Love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Tiffany. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. I know I've met a lot of you, but if we've not had a chance to meet, my name's Hannah, and I get to lead our hospitality team. So normally on a Sunday morning, I get to be in the back of the room and uh, make sure everything runs smoothly, and that's definitely my comfort zone back there. But a couple of Sundays a year, I get to share the message with you, and that's one of these mornings. So I feel a little spoiled because I only give the message a couple times a year usually in the summer, and so I kind of get to save up all of these ideas and topics and books that I've been reading. I take seminary classes online throughout the school year, and I kind of keep keep an Evernote of just like interesting topics or what I might want to talk about. And so usually like when I'm getting ready to speak, I'll look at this list of things that I've thought about or learned about in the past year, and usually, or always in the past, some things kind of just come to the surface. Like some things popped up in my conversations or felt really relevant to the moment, and that's kind of how I choose what I'm going to talk about. So I've gotten comfortable or decently comfortable when you only do something a few times a year. I don't know if it's ever totally comfortable, but I've gotten, I feel like, okay at this system where I get to pick a topic, I've got this great story over here, and then I get to figure out, well, why should you care about what I'm saying? What does God have to say? Let's wrap it up with a conclusion, and there we go. That's kind of my system for preparing for Sunday mornings when I get to speak. So I knew I was going to speak this morning several months ago, And I really wasn't too worried until like mid to late May when I had no idea still what I was going to talk about. Like nothing felt right. I looked at my list, just nothing felt right. And it has has to feel right for me. So Adam suggested to me, well, why don't you take the next section of Matthew? Just take the next section of Matthew and walk people through that. And I thought, ugh, I, there's a lot of reasons why I don't want to do this because I don't think I'm smart enough for that. I'm not well-read enough. I'm not a New Testament scholar. I've never even taken a New Testament class. Like, what if I got something wrong? But it, it felt right. And so I'm here this morning. I bring all those lovely insecurities with me. But I'm here, and I'm excited to, to share that with you. So 
I felt like in these past few weeks as I've been preparing, like in the past, I've put myself first and my story and what do I want to share? What am I excited about? And I've kind of figured out how God has spoken into that or, or what, what texts have been helpful for me. And I felt like as I was getting ready for this morning, I felt kind of this nudging from God saying, you're going to put me first this time. Like you're going to put my text first this time and you can figure out how to do that. And so a couple, or last Sunday actually, I was talking to my friends Nate and Jill before the nine o'clock last week, and Scott and I had just gotten back from vacation, and Nathan was going, you know, oh, did you have any great crazy stories from vacation that you're going to share this morning? And I said, yeah, I've got some fun stories, and no, I'm actually not going to share any of them. And I kind of named this tension that I've been feeling, like this, this nudge to kind of put God first in, in this message. And Nathan looks at me and he goes, well, God's story's been working really great for over 2,000 years now. And so I think you'll probably find something to say. So it's kind of in that I feel like I've been challenged and really humbled and I'm excited to kind of dive into this 11 verses of text. So I grew up in the church, and this, this text is not unfamiliar to me. I've heard this and read this quite a bit, but it's always been really confusing. It's always felt very inconsistent with who I thought Jesus was. You know, I think of Jesus as a person who stands up for the marginalized and the persecuted and, and wants to stand up to evil, and this section made him sound really passive almost like a doormat. And I just never knew what to do with that until a couple years ago, I was, I was in a seminary class and I had to read this book called Jesus and Nonviolence, A Third Way. And it's by a guy named Walter Wink. And he's a, he was a biblical scholar and theologian and he's known for his work on nonviolent resistance, kind of resi- nonviolent resistant movements throughout history. And so as I was reading this book, I realized there's a ton of historical and cultural context that's all tied into, like, these, this really short section. So we're just going to dive in, and a lot of what I'm going to go through is from this book I read and from The Divine Conspiracy as well. So let's just dive in. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So where have we heard that? Well, Jesus' audience, so the people who were listening to Jesus, remember we're kind of in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, the people listening to Jesus would have been really familiar with this because it's in Leviticus. It's part of this old law that the Jewish people were living under. So this is what Leviticus 24 says. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Ugh, that sounds so brutal. It's known as this idea of equalization of injury. So if I punch you in the nose, you punch me in the nose, and we're good. That's it. It stops there. It's meant to de-escalate any kind of violent situations. 
but it's not really working. And I feel like with what we know about human nature, um, like we're not really satisfied. If something happens to me, you do something to me, I want something done to you twice as bad. It's kind of how we are. I feel like as well, they could have asked the parents of any small child, like this doesn't work. And I was thinking about that and I'm not a parent, but I remember being a kid. And I have a sister who's two and a half years younger than me. And one afternoon, this summer afternoon, we were out in the yard playing softball. And I had like, we had a plastic bat and a plastic ball, you know, like those little kid sets. And we're playing, it's just the two of us. And I probably started it, because I'm the oldest, I started a lot. So I probably started something because my sister got mad at me. And so when she went into the outfield, she thought I wasn't looking and she started moving the bases farther and farther away from home plate. So I got mad, and so I started like pitching to myself because I was sure she was cheating and pitching really poorly, and I started kind of throwing up and pitching to myself, and this kind of escalated until my sister got mad and ran, she was running into the house to tell my mom about something I did. And so I was holding this, this plastic softball, and I thought, ugh, I wish I could just beam her in the back of the head with this. And I kind of threw it after her, and I got her. I got her right in the back of the head with this plastic softball. And so she turns around and she starts crying and and yells at me and runs in to tell mom this horrible thing I've done. And so I thought, well, crap, I better get in there and like defend myself because I'm I'm the oldest, I'm always right. So I go in and my mom's laughing. And my sister's crying and she's saying, oh, you know, Hannah hit me on the back of the head. She did it on purpose. And my mom... She looks at us and goes, oh, Hannah doesn't have that good an aim. There's no way she did that on purpose. You're both fine. Get, get out of here. Go outside. <laughs> the idea of equalization of injury is not, it's not working here. And so Jesus brings about this kind of new way to respond. So if we continue on, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So, when Walter Wink is kind of writing his book, he made this statement, and it, it goes on, you can go to the next slide. When given a fair hearing in its original social context, that is arguably one of the most revolutionary political statements ever uttered. I would have never gotten there myself. So let's start with that first line, do not resist an evil doer. Kind of seems inconsistent with who we know Jesus to be. Like, do not resist an evildoer. What's happening here? Well, in the book, he goes on for several pages and, and argues something about the Greek translation to English translation and how we got to this particular set of words here. And honestly, it got really muddy in the middle, and so I was going to pack my way through it this morning. It's not happening. So I got to his conclusion. And what he concludes is that a more proper translation of this phrase would be, do not retaliate against violence with violence. So if someone responds, reacts violently to you, don't respond in kind. Don't reflect violence with violence. So how does Jesus say we should respond? How does he go on to say we should react? 
Well, I, I want to talk about that, but first, psychologists ha- suggest that there are three ways that people respond to stress, and you've probably heard of fight, flight, or freeze. We've got these kind of innate gut responses to dangerous or potentially dangerous situations. And I don't think these are bad. I think that these gut reactions can serve to protect us in many situations. Like just last week, this made me think of this story from a couple weeks ago. Scott and I were hiking. We stopped at this little state park in Idaho just to like stretch our legs on vacation. And so we're hiking and we're maybe 10, 15 minutes from our car. So we're kind of just, you know, wandering around. We're not really paying attention. And we came across this little pond and there was a moose right across the pond. And then there were two babies right next to this mama moose. And so my instant reaction was to start backing up and try and think about if I knew if moose knew how to swim really quickly. So I backed up. Scott thought it was cool. I wanted to get out of there. So we turned around and we go back up the path and we're maybe wandering another 10, 15 minutes or so. And up ahead on the trail, I hear this loud crash in a bush and a moose, another moose, pops his head out of these bushes. And again, I know moose can run and walk, so I was like definitely getting the heck out of there. So I think these, these gut responses aren't bad. They do serve to help us in certain situations. But here, Jesus is introducing a way in which evil can be opposed without being mirrored. So what does that look like? concerning these examples. And like I learned in this book I was reading, there's a ton of history and cultural context that's just wrapped up into these three little examples. So let's start with the first one. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Okay, what do we know about this time and place? What we know about this time and place is your left hand was not to be used except for like unclean stuff, like think bathroom duty. Not using that one. So that leaves your right hand. So if I'm to hit someone with my right hand, it's not gonna be great because I'm a lefty, but if I'm just supposed to hit someone with my right hand, I would need to, to hit them on their right cheek, backhand them. To hit someone with an open, open palm or a fist would be to acknowledge them as an equal. And to acknowledge someone or start a fight with someone who I consider my equal in the society, there would be punishment. There would be social repercussions. To backhand someone, there's no consequences in this society. So this kind of interaction, there's definitely a power dynamic at play, okay? It's used to reinforce, like, social inequalities of the time. So an example or a couple examples of how this interaction would play out is, like, a master might backhand his servant, or a husband, a wife, or an adult, a child, or a Roman, a Jew. And it's meant to, again, reinforce this social hierarchy and this social inequality. And it's also meant to, like, to shame that other person, to humiliate that other person, to kind of put them, like, in their place, which I know sounds gross, but that's kind of how things worked. And so what Jesus is saying, if you're in this situation, turn the other cheek. So that does a couple things. So if you turn your left cheek to me, I now have like just a logistical dilemma. I can choose to strike with my right hand, but that would be to acknowledge you as an equal. Or I could use my left hand, but we're not 
doing that in this culture. So what am I supposed to do? And I think for the person who's choosing, you know, it's almost like this, this defiance, this way of opposing my evil without mirroring it. And I just wonder if Jesus would have known, like for that person to fight back or to try and run away would have been bad, maybe even deadly. And so he's giving this opportunity for that person to like maintain their humanity and their dignity and for me to like recognize that. So even if I blow up and make things worse, the point's not lost. Like you've shown that you are human and that you are equal to me. Kind of changing these, the dynamics of these personal interactions. So the second example, give your cloak. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. So who is being sued for their coat? A really, really poor individual with nothing else that they have to be taken from them. And what also I learned this week is that um, at this time, I don't know about wealthier individuals, but poor individuals would have worn two garments, a cloak and a coat. So like an inner garment and an outer piece of clothing. So you do the math. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. What does that mean? They're standing in court naked. And so what we know about Judaism and this this society at this time was that nakedness was super taboo, but the shame and the humiliation was not felt by the person who's standing in court naked, but by the person causing the nakedness. And so in the book, Wink suggests that, like, this example would have caused Jesus' audience to just laugh because it's so bizarre. It's such an interesting, like, different way that, that you're responding in this, like, totally unpredictable way that kind of throws the, the shame back on the person trying to do evil. The third example, give, oh, nope, we're not there yet. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. So at this time, Roman soldiers could mandate any citizen to carry their pack for one mile. And one mile, that's it. So if, I, if I'm a Roman soldier and I mandate this person to, to carry their pack for one mile, imagine this scenario. We get to the end of a mile, and I go to take the pack back, and this person says, no, 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 it's fine, I got the second. Like, we, I legally can't allow this person to carry this pack any farther. So again, it kind of causes this unpredictable reaction, and it kind of throws the shame and the humiliation back on me. And again, this like, would have created a really bizarre, funny scenario to the people at this time. I think what these examples do, really, is they show us there's a change in our personal interactions. Like These interactions are transformed. Like, the oppressor's forced to recognize the humanity of the person that they're trying to oppress. Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy, and he's really clear that these aren't laws. These are illustrations. And they're illustrations of how Christ followers, like how we will characteristically respond in certain situations, or examples of the kind of characteristics that we want to have in everyday interactions. And he goes on to say that it's our responsibility to pay attention and be aware to God's presence in our everyday moments, in our, inter- in, in our interactions. Like these three scenarios, 
really don't make sense in our culture. And so it's our responsibility to kind of identify these characteristics and figure out how does that, like, what does that look like for us today? He sums up this section really nicely, and he says, in every concrete situation, we have to ask ourselves not, did I do the specific thing in Jesus' illustrations, but am I being the kind of person Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? I love that last part. Am I being the kind of person that embodies these characteristics that Jesus is communicating to this crowd? So kind of to to jump to the second part of the text here, we're talking about loving our enemies. And I got really hung up for the past few weeks. I've been asking myself this question, who is my enemy? Like, who is my enemy? Think about it. I I don't really walk around imagining I've got enemies. I don't know about you or how you think about enemies, but this one was really hard. Like, who is my enemy? When have I, I've never asked myself that question. So I thought, okay, let me try and figure this out. Maybe it's like the most vindictive dictators of the world. They're my enemies. That sounds pretty good. Or like international terrorists. I could be those guys' enemies. That sounds pretty good. But in, in The Divine Conspiracy, like Dallas Willard makes it really clear, the wrongs in question are clearly personal injuries. They're not institutional or social evils. And how do we know that? It's clear from the parts of the old law referred to, right? Jesus is referring to the old law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He brings up these, these new ways to respond, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, All of these are examples of personal interactions, like interactions that happen when we are face-to-face with one another. We're in the same physical location. So who is my enemy? In Luke, I found this verse. This verse over in Luke, kind of helpful, got me thinking about who is my enemy. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So who's my enemy now? Maybe my enemy is someone that just doesn't like me. Maybe my enemy is someone who cut me off in traffic the other day. I could go on and on with the traffic examples. That's a really easy one. But maybe my enemy is that person who is just rude to me at the store. Like maybe my enemy is someone who like gave me a dirty look on the sidewalk. I don't know. You can probably fill it in. What if our enemy is not like this something big thing out there, but what if he's referring to just those people who mistreat or are rude to us in kind of our everyday personal interactions. I was thinking about um, social media and kind of how our personal interactions have really changed over the past several years. And so I'm on Facebook and Instagram. My preference is Instagram. I can do Facebook. And I'm mostly there for like the vacation pictures and your baby pictures and like I love all that stuff. But I'm also on Twitter. and. I don't tell people that because I don't actually tweet. I don't actually know how to tweet, and I don't understand it, and I probably never will. But I love to follow all sorts of people. I love to follow 
world leaders and politicians of kind of every flavor and uh, political figures and all sorts of different people. I'm a psychology major. I, I love to like watch how people interact and what language they use and how they frame language. And it's really interesting to kind of watch it play out online. And I've noticed a few things as I've just kind of been stalking people on Twitter. I've noticed a few things. There's this really pervasive use of enemy language in our culture. Like I see it all the time. It's so easy for us to kind of frame others as enemy. And like both sides do this. Those evil people over there or that group of terrible people over there. It's so easy to, I think when we don't agree with someone or we don't understand to maybe frame that as, as bad or evil. And I think, I think, this is just my thoughts, but I think when we add distance, the past year or so, we've been like physically distance from another. And I think social media also kind of creates this perceived distance from people because we're not in the same room. I think distance plus this pervasive use of enemy language leads to dehumanization. And this really scared me this week when I was thinking about this because if we look at history and we look at examples of history when when other humans have dehumanized humans, like really bad things happen. What if Jesus, in this text, in these examples, what if Jesus is calling us to step in, to lean in, to lean into these personal interactions and examine them? What if Jesus is calling us to step in closer, to get close to people and recognize the humanity in them. What if, I mean, I think fight and flight, obviously it's helpful in some situations, but what if that person we disagree with or that person that was rude to us, what if we don't fight them or run away? What if we find this like Jesus approach or a way to move forward like using God's approach here? What does that look like? Like, what does that look like if we start to apply this to where we're at right now in this moment in Helena, Montana in 2021? What does it look like to lean in and humanize and see the God image in others and those who are interacting with us every day? I think it's really important. We don't have to agree. And I often have the best conversations with people who I don't agree with. It's kind of fun. And also, what if we're called to recognize the humanity in those people that we don't agree with? We get to take communion, and I'm going to pray in just a second, we'll take communion, but I just encourage you to think about what does it look like to live as people, to live as the kinds of people that behave in ways that Jesus is describing? Like, What does it look like to be the kinds of people who characteristically embody like the traits that Jesus is describing in these examples. So God, thanks for just this morning, and we can come together and study your word, and thanks for scholars that put it into historical and cultural context so we can make sense of it here in, in 2021 in Helena. God, thanks that you provide us just with a way to be with one another that's that's not fighting or getting away help us to just think about how we can 
really embody you and in our everyday interactions. We love you. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.